themselves and 360 the world. Jamie Neal, the host, asks many questions about their mindset and how they fundamentally operate their world and the world around them. Here at 360 Yourself, we are very proud and honoured to be partnered with General Assembly. We embrace this with open arms to a new adventure. General Assembly is a global tech education company focused on the most in-demand areas today. So that's anything from UX, digital marketing, coding, data science, data analytics, to travel writing and ethics. Our slash their main goal is to get you where you want to be. You can find out more about them at ga.co online or across all socials at ga underscore London. We also encourage you to please rate and comment about us on Apple Podcasts. If you do enjoy what we bring to your ears, we'd love to hear about it. We're supported by General Assembly and that's right, you can get a 25% discount for their services. Promo code is 360yourself25. The code will be valid up to £75 off any one of their classes, workshops and boot camps and is valid until the 31st 08 2021 and is not applicable to GA's full-time, part-time or online circuit courses. Full T's and C's apply. Hello and welcome back to 360 Yourself. I hope you're having a good morning, good afternoon or good evening wherever you are in the world. Welcome back to 360 Yourself. If you did enjoy uh, our previous guests and you've come back, thank you very much for listening in and thank you very much for taking the moment. I mean, these these aren't very long episodes. They're very short and they're meant to be short and concise to really get the point of who the person is and what we're talking about. So I hope you're enjoying um, all that we're bringing you at 360 Yourself. So one thing that we were talking about with our next guest coming up, who was a leading PhD in psychology and has two books called um, How Emotions Are Made and Seven and a Half Lessons. We were talking about emotions, basically, because that's what she does. She talks about emotions and how we view emotions and how we control them, how we manipulate them, how we understand them. Um, and so talking about what are emotions and how we create our emotions or how emotions are made is all very, very technical stuff. But from what I gathered from our conversation is that we experience uh, our life and we, our body remembers those experiences and our, those feelings. And so even before we act, react to something that's in our space, our body's already um, predicting how to respond to something that's already coming up in our space. So you know when you say... Um, the only thing you can control is your own reaction to a situation. Well, yes, that's also correct, but our body's already, already predicting even before we react to the situation. And this goes down to or like habits. Like, how do you change habits? They, they say after 21 days, um, you can change your habit. You can break a habit. And I think it's, it goes back down to as well, we talk about predictions of our body and reacting we can change those habits from our experiences, but it takes a, quite a long time. And we are also um, a creature of habit. So we all, our bodies always remember these, these experiences of how we were feeling maybe 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And, and there's a bank of, uh, of information, basically a bank of data that allows our body to do its thing. So, and then, then we go on to about like how emotions are made and how do we control emotions? Because obviously, we are most emotive beings like that whole uh, consensus about um, your logic brain versus your emotional brain um, it obviously is a very uh, foundation kind of thinking or thought process but essentially what we want to do is we want to be able to understand what we're feeling in those moments because you know sometimes 
you get an overwhelming feeling of like even a bit of sadness or a bit of anxiety and you can't really pinpoint what it is. Well, basically, um, you need to go into and listen to this uh, amazing guest coming up and also just buy into her books because she honestly gives you those tools to understand how your emotions are made and why they're made and potentially how you might be able to to maneuver them and be able to manipulate them in a certain way to, to your better advantage rather than let your emotions take a hold of you and you go off in a massive tangent. So I really, really want you to take it all in because I literally, it was like a crash course masterclass in psychology listening to her and I learned so much. So I want to introduce you to uh, Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett. Hey Lisa, how are you doing? I am hanging in there. How are you doing? Hanging, I'm good. I'm good. Like when you say hanging in there, is that like a good term? Is that, I, when I, when when someone says hanging there, I just you know that picture of that kitten that's hanging in with, <laughs> by a tree. Yeah, that's that's about it. Hanging on. Yeah. So usually what it means is there's a lot going on uh, in the world, and um, I'm you know, I care about a lot of people. I'm responsible for a lot of people. So I feel like I'm holding a lot of people up, which yeah. I'm really grateful to do actually. Mm -hmm. So usually what it means is like everybody else, I'm kind of weathering this tsunami of stuff going on I today. Know. It also means I'm having actually spinal surgery tomorrow. So <gasps> oh, today, today is a day where I, when I say I'm hanging in there, I really oh. mean I am hanging in there. Oh, wow. Okay. That is definitely hanging in there. You've got spinal. Yeah. I mean, that's mental. Yeah. yeah. I'm sending you a lot of love. I mean, a I, lot, a lot I, of love. I, 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 I'm receiving it and very, very gratefully <laughs> receiving it. No, you know, I mean, I have to say that, um, you know, it's a challenging thing to do, but it's also, um, it's an opportunity to be reflective about a lot of the things that I write about and, and the, the research that I do is actually really helpful. It turns out. Um, and, it's also helpful. There are a lot of people that I care about and that I take care of around the world. And at the moment, they are really taking care of me. So mm. um, it's actually a moment for, as as is often the case in you know moments, big moments where something big eventful is happening in your life. It's a really, it's a moment to be grateful for your connections to other people. That's actually how I'm really, really seeing it. And not to say that you know. I, I'm not occasionally thinking about what's about to happen to my spine, but, um, but I have a great surgeon and, um, you know, I have a great care team and my family and friends are being my lab. Everybody's being amazingly helpful. So that's amazing. And thank you for being so open and honest on, on podcast about your surgery tomorrow. Cause it's a very uh, big surgery. So I, I am so much sending you lots of love because that, that's quite, but it is, yeah. so it's, it's, it's funny it's funny isn't it because obviously you being your work I mean you help a lot of people with your work and now it's quite nice that it's on the opposite end that you're in the space and you and you're getting all that love and support from everyone around you yeah exactly exactly and you know honestly when your body fails you as often happens as you get older you know it's sometimes in small indignant ways and then sometimes you know in larger ways you have to sort of remember who you are and mm. who I am is somebody who is constantly in communion with other people, communicating science, communicating, you know. And so um, there's this concept that my, one of my graduate students shared with me. It's a, it's a Quaker concept called turning outward of the self, which means that you use your own experience to share um, with others in the hopes that it will be useful for other people. Mm. And so that's actually what I'm really trying to do. Um, partly because I think, you know, it's time, it's good for people to see me put my money where my mouth is. Um, you know, I write a lot about dealing with stress and body budgeting and how do you, you know, so I write a lot about these things and, and this is an opportunity for people to see me put it into practice and they can see how they can see my successes and they can also see how hard it is to do actually. Um, um, but it's also selfish in the sense that it helps me uh, continue to be who I am, uh, you know, to hold, have, my, uh, have my identity hold firm um, as uh, my body needs some mechanical adjustments, I guess is the mm. best way to it's, 
I find I find it amazing though how how uh, uh, researched your work is, and about uh, well, obviously one of your books is obviously how emotions are made, and and obviously your emotions must be going through so many different uh, processes. But it's like that whole saying like you can give advice, but sometimes to take your own advice is really difficult. But you 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 wrote so many books about emotions and your own emotions going. So you're trying to like utilize all the information and all the research you do in your own life now. now yeah, I'm life. actually a very data-driven person. So, I mean, this, you know, um, for better or for worse, I mean, I think what my, you know, my, my surgeon seems to be uh, happy with me asking question after question after question and requesting papers to read and, and things like that. The rest of the health staff, I'm not so sure. I think they think I'm a bit of a pain in the ass because my <laughs> my question's always like, well, what's the evidence for that? I or, mean, I know, would be like that as well. I'd be asking nonstop yeah. questions all the or, time. Or, you know, I'll ask a question and they'll say, like, I asked a question. There's been several times where I've asked a question about, you know, nausea, uh, you know, after, you know, the anesthesia and, and I'll get an answer that's something like, well, if you're fearful about such and such, and then I'll say, I'm not fearful. I'm asking you a question. I, I'm looking actually for information. And what I'm doing there really is I'm being really protective actually of my emotions because when people use words with you, whether they're in healthcare or anywhere else, they use words like anxiety, fear, depression. They're basically, words are like an invitation for you to construct your emotion, for you to construct your sensations into emotions. And sometimes you it's a good idea to accept those invitations and sometimes it isn't actually so you know i had this one time where uh, i went to a physician and um it was a new physician new primary care physician because my my old physician had had um had retired and i went and i said you know i'm really fatigued like you know and he said the physician said are you are you depressed and i said no i'm not depressed i'm I'm fatigued to the bone, I'm fatigued. And he said, well, maybe you're depressed and you don't know it. And I said, no, I'm not depressed. I'm really just fatigued. fatigued. He's like, well, are you, are you stressed? And I said, well, I run a, I run a lab with 25 people and it, you know, I'm, you know, it's a multi-million dollar endeavor, you know, constantly having to raise grant money. And so of course I'm stressed, but I'm not more stressed now than at any other time. So it's not, you know, and what is stress anyways? Stress is just, your brain preparing you for a big metabolic outlay. It's a, your brain preparing you to do a big body budget spending, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's what stress is. And and um, finally, you know, he just kept pushing, like, are you, but, but maybe you're depressed and you don't know. And finally I said to him, you know, um, first of all, here are the DSM. Uh, so uh, in the UK it would be um, I, ICD, you know, here are the criteria for depression. I don't meet those. I mean, I don't meet those criteria, but also, you know, like, listen to what I'm saying. So as I was leaving, um, the nurse said to me, listen, honey, are you, you know, I don't mean to pry, but like, are you going through menopause? And I was like, yeah, I'm going through menopause. And she said, well, that's probably why you're fatigued. Here, read this book. And I read the book and then I went and looked up a bunch of papers. And sure enough, it turns out that sex hormones, like, or estrogen, testosterone, or metabolic regulators. And as we age, you know, as women age, they lose their estrogen very, you know, over, over a course of a couple of years. For men, it's a slow decline in testosterone. And, um, and so we get more fatigued actually, as we go through this process because we're losing this hormone. And, but what I thought was really, really interesting in this case is that this physician had no idea that he was actually offering me a way of making sense. He's offering my brain a way of making sense of my physical sensations. And had I accepted that invitation, not only would I have been on SSRIs, which probably wouldn't have helped the actual problem that I was having, um, but um, I, you know, I would have started look, looking around to all the things in my life that um, were causing could cause me distress and. It would have actually shifted. It, it was a pivotal. It could have been a pivotal point, um, uh, you know, um, where I would have started constructing my experience differently and making sense of my this, my the sensations of my body in relation mm. to the world very very differently. Mm. And so I'm very protective actually of that process. Like I certainly, if I I have been depressed in my life and and um, I'm not 
you know, defensive about that diagnosis. My daughter was depressed. And in part, the reason why I wrote How Emotions Are Made was because, you know, when, when you have a child who's depressed, it's like an epidemic, actually, depression right now. And when you have a child who's depressed, it's like the whole family goes through. Yeah, uh, it makes you sad. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's not, yes. And it turns out that, you know, as I said, it's a it, depression is a, um, it's actually the World Health Organization now has put it ahead of heart disease as the, um, the leading cause of disease burden in the world. At this moment and, in time, because obviously everyone's going through so much like, despair at yeah. this moment in time with COVID. And, but... and, you know, I literally have thousands of emails from people who've read How Emotions Are Made, and now my second book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, um, and, and found really not just solace, and you know, they're not just laughing at my jokes, they're, they're actually finding the science really useful, um, you know, not as a recipe for health, but more like a tasting menu of like things that mm. you can try, that you know, there's some research behind it that suggests you know, that it might be helpful for managing your body budget, you know, that is helping your brain to make it easier to manage your body and, and being a little more mindful about when you construct sensations, you know, your brain is always talking to your body, your brain's always trying to control your body, your body's always um, sending information back to your brain, and your brain is always trying to make sense of those sensations in relation to what's going on around you in the world. And of course, yeah, you have more choice over the way that your you know you your brain has a lot of choice over how it makes sense of those sensations and so i'm pretty i was saying i'm i just i'm trying actually the research shows that in a situation like this it's really important to distinguish between fatigue discomfort and distress but how and, do you, but how do you how do you when people are feeling those sorts one of those sort of th three things and your emotions are kind of because obviously we we obviously that there's a book of the chimp paradox we obviously you've, your logic and your emotion how do you determine from when your emotion lets you go into a sort of spiral how do you kind of know which one's which well the first thing is that 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 idea of the chimp brain and you know your logic versus your emotion is a complete fiction mm. that that's not how your brain evolved. It's not how your brain is structured. It's not how your brain works. So this is something that's in seven and a half lessons. And it's also in um, seven uh, and in how emotions are made. Mm -hmm. Your brain did not evolve to have like a lizard, an inner lizard, you know, yeah. um, you know or an inner or an inner monkey um, yeah, yeah. For, for instincts and emotions. Uh, you know, your brain is not a battleground between emotion and reason. It, it feels that way to us in the West, that's a very Western story of how, um, um, it's actually a morality tale. You know, your, um, your brain or your mind is a battleground between emotion and reason or instincts, you know, your inner beast and reason. And if, when, when uh, reason wins, you are uh, moral and healthy. And when uh, reason doesn't win, you are immoral if you didn't try hard enough and you are un you're sick if you couldn't. Uh, mm. control your emotion with reason. And the whole thing is just a myth. Um, really what's happening is your brain's main, most important job is to control your body, the systems of your body, to keep your body healthy and well. And it runs a budget for your body. There's a technical term for that. We call it allostasis, which means that your brain is constantly trying to anticipate the needs of the body and it attempts to meet those needs before they arise. So the budgeting isn't money, it's budgeting, you know, salt and glucose and water and oxygen and all the things that your cells require to stay alive and healthy. And for you to do, you know, your most important job from an evolution standpoint, which is to pass your genes on to the next generation mm -hmm. um, and, and make sure that generation survives to, to reproductive age. Um, and so in that process, um, your brain is constantly sending messages to your body and your body is constantly sending sense data back to your brain. And you don't, you're not, the, your brain doesn't make itself aware of all of that budgeting. You know, there's a whole drama going on inside you right now, Jamie. And, of in, course, me, yeah. and, in, and in all our listeners, and we're mostly unaware of that drama. I hope for everybody's sake that they are unaware. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, if you are aware, it means something's seriously gone wrong. But we mostly experience what we experience as a consequence of that drama are simple feelings like feeling pleasant, feeling unpleasant, feeling worked up, feeling calm, feeling comfortable, feeling uncomfortable. Those simple feelings are not emotions. They are, think of them as like properties of consciousness. They're kind of like simple feelings that allow you to, it's like a barometer for your body budget. Like mm. are, is everything, you know, okay, am I running a deficit? You know, do I need to make a deposit? Um, so you're, you're, we, you know, people call this mood or um, scientists call it affect, you know, so when your affect is unpleasant, when you're feeling discomfort or you're feeling unpleasant, that usually means something's wrong in the body budget department. And um, it doesn't tell you what to do about it. It doesn't tell you what's wrong. It doesn't, you know, there's not, it's, it's only kind of like a, you know, like a sentinel or like an alarm in a sense. Hmm. Um, and so what your brain has to do is make sense of what that information means and it's constantly attempting to do that by using past experience in the form of knowledge um, like concepts conceptual knowledge and that knits the meaning of what's going on inside your body to what's going on around you in the world so when you have a tug in your chest what caused that tug your brain doesn't know it only it only detects the tug it doesn't know what why? Yeah, why exactly. is so it has to guess, and it could guess. Oh, there's uncertainty, and so um, you know uh, maybe it's important to get information. It could guess. Well, the last time this happened in this situation, when I um, uh, you know felt a tug in my chest, it was um, uh, you know if you're depending on you know like say you're in a hospital and you're or you're in a doctor's office and you're waiting for a test result, you know. Um, it, you know, it was anxiety. So your brain could construct anxiety. Mm, it could be mm. that you had too much to eat for dinner and you, you have indigestion. It could be the beginnings of a heart attack, actually. Yeah. Um, it so, could be but, but, what, but what happens if, what happens when you have multiple emotions? And th so how do you depict what emotion actually you are feeling? Because sometimes you don't know what you're feeling. You just got loads of different things and you can't really pinpoint what it is. Well, because it isn't one thing. <laughs> yeah, it's complicated. Well, no, I think the point that I'm making is that you um, you have a choice. It's not like there's really some authentically real emotion that is triggered inside you and is lurking there and you have to be become aware of it. Yeah. It's that something has disrupted, um, you know, your inner equilibrium. And usually it's not one thing. Usually there are multiple things and your brain has a choice of, of what to focus on. So, you know, in the middle of, um, you know, or even now, actually, you know, you can choose to construct um, multiple emotions, depending on how you choose to make sense of how of these affective feelings and the sense data the conditions, the sense data that come from the conditions of your body, that sounds really kind of intellectual. But it's um. It, it actually works, um, mm. and so, because because you're what you're doing is you're basically taking charge of the the normal process that happens really automatically. But so when so when you get a thought like so for instance that you have positive thoughts and negative thoughts, right? So what is the what actually comes first? Is it the feet? Is it the emotion or is it the thought that comes first to then? Because obviously you can have a negative you can have a you can feel not so great and then have a negative spiral but then there's obviously the tools that you can like think about something great in your life like gratitude and then you kind of go into positive is it is the thought first or is it the the emotion that comes first before the thought so that's a in my neck of the woods that's not a meaningful question <laughs> right because what's happening is that your brain is your brain so if we stop time everything stands still, what's happening in, in your brain? Your brain is representing something about the state of your body and the state of the world, something that just happened, right? And based on that, your brain makes a prediction about what's gonna happen next. And that prediction first is a, a, a motor prediction for changing the state of your body. Mm -hmm. And then it constructs, 
It predicts what you're likely to see, hear, smell, taste, feel. So actually, in a given moment, your brain first makes a prediction about the motor changes in your body. Should your heart rate go up? Should it go down? Should it release? Should your you know adrenal glands release cortisol because you need you know a big burst of energy quickly? Um, should there you know? So it's making these motor internal motor predictions first, and it's preparing any kind of motor action, and it's preparing that those those um, those commands. And as a consequence of that, it your brain predicts it changes the firing of its own neurons to prepare you to see certain things, to hear certain things, to think certain things. So basically um, an emotion is constructed in exactly the same way as a thought is constructed, which is exactly the same as the way a perception is constructed. They're not constructed differently. These are features of your experience that your brain is constructing. I think the but, if, but I think the way that I would answer your question is to reinterpret the question and to say, what is um, more important to launching the next set of predictions? Is it the state of your body? Is it the state of the world? And the answer is usually it's the state of your body. Mm. You can try to focus on the world, focus on, on um, features of the world, looking at certain things, hearing certain things, that that will, um, that will maybe have more weight in launching the next set of predictions. But usually if you feel like shit, it's because something is wrong in your body or your brain believes something is wrong in your body and that drives the predictions. So that drives the, the thoughts. So just to say, your feelings, which come from your body, these affective, simple affective feelings, not emotions, these simple affective feelings are more primary in a sense. They draw, I mean, the body is really, the, or the way the brain is modeling the body is driving your thoughts and your emotions. Because mm. uh, a, lot, a lot of people would say it all, the only thing that you can control is your reaction to the, the surroundings that are happening, all the kind of pulses. Would you well, say that you, would? Well, I don't think you don't react to things. You're predicting things. That's the, that's the point, right? So for example, there are a lot of ways to show that this is true. You can, there's just, you know, I think up now more than a thousand studies that have been done to show that this is how the brain is structured. This is how the brain works. But usually when I try to explain it to people, um, I'll use examples like baseball, you know, when a pitcher is facing, uh, uh, when a batter is facing a pitcher, the batter can't wait to see the pitcher throw the ball. If the batter waits to see the pitcher throw the ball, particularly in professional baseball, um, you know, fastball, there actually physically isn't enough time for the batter to wait to see the ball and then attempt to lift his arms and swing the bat and hit it. If he mm. waits, he loses. Same thing true with football. It's true with, you know, I mean, basically any kind of sport. No, what's happening is that the batter's brain based on his knowledge of that pitcher, his brain is, you know, how much, based on how much he slept last night, what his glucose levels are like, how hydrated he is, what the wind temp, what the wind is like, you know, like all of these things, his brain is sort of taking all these bits into account and is making a prediction. And into that prediction, a, into a second. <laughs> and that prediction is the changes internally that are needed to support a swing or not, or he, or he might choose not to swing. But even before the pitcher has released the ball from his brain, is, his brain, the his, batter's brain, already engaged in preparing that swing. So, and, so essentially we're never really reacting. We've, we've already preconceived what we're already gonna do from the reaction of outside. Is that what you're saying? What I'm saying is your brain is always starting. Your brain is always talking to itself. Yeah. It doesn't make itself aware of that inner chatter usually, but um, your brain's always talking to itself. It's always making predictions. And so to you, it feels like you see something and you react to it, or you hear something and you react to it. Yeah. But actually what's happening under the hood is that your brain is predicting based on its beliefs about the state of your body and the state of the world. It predicts using past experience. like. The last time I was in a state like this, when I was in a situation like this, what did I do? What did I hear? What did I see? What did I, and, and 
that's what it's doing. It's basically, and it doesn't make one prediction, it makes a bunch of predictions. So there's a bunch of choices um, and the brain has to figure out like what's the best choice in this particular situation. And is, it all happens really automatically. So is it, cause obviously there's, this kind of crosses sort of into kind of like behavioral kind of like traits and, and, and routines and that sort of things. And they obviously, they say that within 21 days, you can break like a, a cycle of behavior. Obviously your brain is coming up with numerous options to predict this outcome of what's happening. How can you, can you, can, can you change the prediction? Like, can you give yourself more options? How do you do that? Well, there are a bunch of different ways to do it. I mean, one way to do it is um, to realize that, um, you know, you're, well, one way to do it is to change the situation that you're in, like literally or figuratively. So literally, if you want to change the situation you're in, um, you know, you get up and you move to another situation. Like, you know, you go outside <laughs> yeah. for a walk yeah. or, you, or you, right, you change the, some of the circumstances that are um, driving your brain's predict, you know, your brain's predictions. But you can also change the situation without moving. And that's called mindfulness. That's just where you focus your attention on some things and you background other things. So for example, right now, your attention is focused on the screen um, and maybe our listeners, their attention is focused on our voices. Probably for, for everyone who's sitting down, their attention is not focused on the backs of their legs, which are pressing against the chair if they happen mm. to be sitting. But when I said that, then your then attention you immediately to go, yeah. To the, yeah. So you can you can manipulate your situation by um actually yep. change the situation by what you pay attention to. Yeah, giving and focus you, to it. Yeah, and or backgrounding. That's one thing you can do. Another thing that you can do um, is to practice to seed new predictions. So in a sense, every experience you have now is sort of cultivating your past that your brain will use to predict in the future. So you can think about, you know, uh, cultivating a different past to predict a, a, a different future, to become a different person or to modify who you are in the future. So an example would be, you know, just like you would invest energy in um, exercise, which is a big body budgeting expenditure. It's a huge expenditure to exercise, huge energy expenditure. You know, you feel like a lot of people like me, for example, I don't, I'm not one of these people who has a runner's high or anything like that. I feel like shit most of the time while I'm exercising, but then afterwards I feel, you know, great. Better. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you know, that feeling like shit is the feeling of, oh, you know, I'm, I'm making a big body budgeting withdrawal here. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, so as long as you replenish what you spend, it's a really good investment because you get a return on, on that investment. You have a healthier brain and a healthier body. So similarly, you can make other sort of investments. Like you can learn, you can try to cultivate new experiences for yourself. So mm -hmm. for example, uh, there was this research on awe, the, the emotion of awe and um, how it was really supposedly very helpful uh, for, for, um, for health and wellness. And I thought, oh, you know, I'm very skeptical, right? So I'm like, okay, fine. Well, I, I read the experiments, they were very well done. And I thought, all right, I'm gonna try it myself. And so I spent five minutes a day cultivating awe, you know, so a dandelion, I just did it yesterday, actually, you know, dandelions all over my lawn and I'm now not seeing them as nasty weeds that have to be pulled out. I'm seeing them as, you know, the, uh, the great, um, you know, the great power of nature uh, that will um, not be um, suppressed by humans' attempts to control it, you know? And lots of things become an opportunity for us. So I practice off five minutes a day and it kind of became like driving. I can now, you know, when there's a failure of Zoom or the, you know, the internet, you know, a satellite moves and everything goes to shit, I, instead of getting upset, my, I cultivate a moment of awe and I think, well, it's amazing. Actually, Jamie, you are what, 6,000 miles away from me or three, I don't, whatever. Yeah. You know, across, <laughs> a, across a big pond and yet we are talking to each other um, like we were in the same room practically. It's, it's crazy, isn't it? But it is, but, but how, but how is it so? Because it, I had that problem a couple of years ago where I'd get really frustrated. I was talking to someone about this about subtext, 
where people get really emotionally angry about, I don't know, not having the oat milk at their favorite cafe. And they get really angry about the oat milk, but actually it's not about the oat milk, it's something, something deeper that they're getting angry about. Well, usually, I mean, anger can serve lots of functions. There are lots of reasons why people would construct anger, why a brain would construct anger. For me, often it's that someone's blocking my goals. You know, like there's something I wanna do and something's in the way. And um, so, you know, it, it could be that, um, uh, you know, something, if, if lots of things are, are interfering with your, with your goals or, or your efforts and, you know, it's sort of like that last straw. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the interesting, you know, the Buddhist, there's a Buddhist contemplative saying, which is that um, anger is a form of ignorance. And as a person who's quick to anger, I, I like that phrase. I use it a lot as a concept to remind me that I can dissolve anger. I really can dissolve anger in the snap of the fingers now, but it took me a long time. It takes patience. Um, yeah. There's, there's, or, there's, there's situations where you're in like taxis and you're, you're gonna be late and you'd, and so, and I, me personally, I would get really frustrated that I'm going to be late, and there's some, and sometimes it's out of your control. You're just like, you are going to be late. You can't make the, the taxi go any further. So how do you internally, mindfully, just go, relax? You well, can't do, you do it. Here's how you do it. You say, first of all, I'll say, you know, sometimes they're harder than other times. Okay, I mean, obviously, um, but I would say, um, so uh, most of the time when you're late for something it doesn't really matter that you're late. I mean, there might be an, like if your child is dying and you're late, that's bad. I mean, there's really, that really is bad. Yeah, and, perspective. Um, but you know, most of the time it's all a big social construction. They are like, you're late for something. Okay, so you're late. I mean, you know, there's really not a lot necessarily riding on the fact that you're late other than that you will piss someone off or that you'll miss something that you think is important. And then you just, you have to remind yourself that the whole thing is just a big construction. You know, it's just a big, I mean, so if somebody thinks badly of you, what is that? That's just electrical activity in somebody's head. Mm. I mean, you know, so sometimes that electrical activity matters because they, those people hold your outcomes. They can determine your outcomes and that can be that. So that's realistically bad, you know, but there's still things that you could do um, to try to change it. But I, I, I'm not saying that I never get mad. What I'm saying is that um, it's like driving. It's a skill. You, you, you practice, um, you can practice changing how you feel by changing how you make sense of um, what's going on inside you and around you in a given moment. And if the more you practice it, the more skillful you get at it. It's really like any skill that you build. And, First, it's, it's, and it, it's sort of like what you sort of talk about predictions. It's like, it's like sort of like training yourself to not predict in a certain way. Is that, is that what you mean? Yeah, you're training yourself to predict in a different way, mm. you know? So is it very hard to do? It's very hard to do sometimes. So, you know, um, uh, so for example, glass of water, I'm holding a glass of water and um, you know, a number of years ago, I decided I wanted to learn to paint. And so I took lessons with um, uh, a painter. I wanted to learn to paint in the Dutch um, realistic style, like 16th, 17th Dutch realism. And so, um, you know, like Vermeer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so what they had me do was try, try to take this glass. So your brain automatically takes the sense data and constructs it into a, into a glass, okay? You have sights and, you know, you have motor actions and touch and so on. And so, you know, you can hear the glass. Okay, so what you do is you uh, learn to make sense of these sensations differently and you learn to make sense of them as little pieces of light. And then you don't paint the glass on, you don't take a look at the object and say, okay, there's a three-dimensional object here and I'm gonna try to paint it on a two-dimensional surface. You say, because if you do that, you'll get a pretty shitty looking, you know, um, three-dimensional yeah. <laughs> looking painting. Yeah. So you you take this three-dimensional object, you deconstruct it, 
you make sense of it differently as pieces of light. And then you paint the little pieces of light on the canvas. And if you do that and you practice over and over and over and over again, eventually you can do it at will. You can deconstruct the um, object into little pieces of light and paint it on the canvas and get a pretty decent looking three-dimensional object rendered in two dimensions, unless you're me. And, and then- Yeah, I was gonna say, how, how are you doing your painting? Yeah, no, I'm shitty at it. I'm really, really <laughs> bad at it. I really, really bad at it. It's not, I mean, making awe is my, or gratitude like totally much easier than trying to deconstruct. But for, but the point is that you can do it. It just takes a lot of practice. So- And patience, um, yeah. And patience, right. And so for example, um, I'm about to have surgery tomorrow and my job, is going to be, one of my jobs is going to be not to be distressed, but to just feel the discomfort. And it's gonna be really uncomfortable, but there's a reason for doing that. And the reason is that um, when people um, suffer, let's just put it this way, when you get the flu, and you have all these like feeling, you know, like you're you're running a temperature and you're achy and you're, you know, you you fatigued and you feel like you can't move and you're just, you know, dragging your bones. You don't suffer in the sense of like, you don't feel like a bad person. That doesn't launch a whole inner tirade about what a horrible person you are. You just drag your ass into bed, watch movies, drink tea, and you know, and eventually you feel better. When you have some of the very same symptoms though, same affect. Uh, sorry, same physical symptoms, but the affect is different. When people are depressed, like clinically depressed, some of those symptoms are the same, literally the same. There are symptoms of fatigue and like a, like a bankrupt body budget. Hmm. And there is that whole, there is a lot of suffering. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you can um, just, you know, make your suffering go away with a couple of you know, as I said in my TED talk, you know, Jedi mind tricks. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all, but I am saying that, um, that how you make sense of what you feel matters to what you do next. And that is important because it takes you down different trajectories. So um, for me, the trajectory for chronic pain after surgery is to suffer if you allow yourself to construct distress instead of just really profound discomfort. And this is actually backed up by data. If you take people who are dependent on opioids because of chronic back pain and you train them with mindfulness meditation and other um, uh, techniques like that, there's a really great, um, there's really great research done by Eric Gardner on this. Um, what happens is people learn to deconstruct their suffering and, and get rid of the distress and just feel the discomfort, which still feels bad, but it feels bad in the way that, you know, you know when you're in the middle of running a marathon feels bad. Mm. It's not but the it's, same. But you're, but you're, it's, 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 all, it's only, you're, you're obviously, you can't get away with not, feeling comfort like you are gonna, at some point in your life you are going to be uh, in in a very vulnerable discomfort discomfortable place but it's about how you react to that or how how you how your what, body predicts how your body predicts it it's how your brain what your brain predicts and what your brain does with it so mm. you cannot avoid feeling bad and sometimes feeling bad is actually good for you it means that you know if you're working really hard to learn something or you're working really hard to exercise, like pushing yourself really, you know, pain is weakness leaving the body. That's the US Marine saying, which is a great saying, yeah. you know, or the Nike saying, you know, just do it. I it's love just, that saying. I yeah, love exactly. It. But what it's saying is, yeah, you know, it, it feels crappy. Okay, get on with it already, you know? And yeah. so, so sometimes feeling bad is an indication that sometimes that you should do something different, but sometimes, feeling bad means you're doing something really hard. And as long as you replenish what you've spent, you're, you're gonna actually be better for it. But that's a difference. That's different than discomfort. Like even intense discomfort is very different from physiologically from, it, it leads you down a different physiological path than suffering. 
like distress. Yeah. Suffering is very, very different to discomfort though, I'd say. Yes, right. But the point is that when someone is sick, like physically ill or, or when they're suffering from depression or so on, those two things become very, very intertwined. And it's really important to try to unwind them hmm. and, and, and separate them. And you can learn to do it. You can learn to do it. It's just, it, you have to be patient and it takes a lot of time and practice. What would be the number one thing though, to, to be able to do these sort of things that like what sort of mindfulness sort of tools could you, could you suggest to people? Well, I think, you know, first of all, the first thing to do it, it, even before you get to mindfulness, I'm going to now sound like a mother and I am a mother. Um, but, uh, but I'm now speaking, I'm speaking as a neuroscientist, but you know, I'm going to sound like a mother, you know, and that is if you to reduce or to, to really have the the, the sort of spoons to be, you know, as my daughter would say, I don't, you know, I don't have the spoons right now. I'm like, <laughs> uh, you know, and so to have the spoons, to have the energy to, to do what I'm suggesting. First thing is you have to get enough sleep and you have to eat healthfully and, and you have to, um, you have to get enough exercise. Like you have to basically do the kinds of things that make it easier for your brain to, um, uh, to, to manage your body budget. And I say, this is a person who, you know, loves, loves chips and french fries and loves chocolate <laughs> and you know and i have to drag my bed uh you know, drag my ass out of bed in the morning you know to to exercise every day every day it's a struggle for 30 years it's a struggle every day um but i still do it um even now you know i'm going to the hospital uh tomorrow but uh i had a session with my uh trainer this morning and i i have a yoga instructor to help me not injure myself and, you know, like I've been training, I've been doing like prehab, you know, like I feel like I'm training for a marathon, except it's going to be, you know, a marathon on my back. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so um, if you sleep health, if you can get enough sleep and, and eat healthfully, not pseudo food, but, you know, eat healthfully and exercise, even if it's just going for a walk, right off the bat, you're going to be in better shape. You just will. The research sure. is, is unequivocally clear on this. Another thing you can do is have, you know, like I, I would say um, only make sure you are socially connected to people because that help matters. We, we are social animals. We, we don't just make withdrawals and deposits into our own body budgets. We, we do the same for other people. And so that means to only be around people who let you be your best self. Oh, you know? amen. Amen to that. <laughs> That thing for a human nervous system is another human. The worst thing for a human nervous system is also another human. Mm. And, um, you know, uh, sometimes I, I will say, you know, when you avoid people because you're afraid they'll hurt you, um, you know, that will shorten your life. When you break up with someone or you have a fight with someone, it feels like your life is over, but it isn't. You're just, you're just in the middle of something unpleasant. But actually, if you avoid people, um, or you spend time around people who are stressful to you in a bad way, um, meaning that um, you know they they cost you something energetically. Um, that that actually will shorten your life. And the evidence I think is again very very clear on that point. So I would say after you do all those things, then you can get into this like these you know these Jedi mind tricks where you. You can learn to, there are lots and lots and lots of um, opportunities to learn to be mindful. You know, there are lots of programs um, that you can learn mindfulness meditation. Um, so I would say learning how to control your attention to um, usually your attention's on autopilot and, um, but you can learn to control your attention, what you pay, what you're focusing on what, what, what properties in the world or in your body, what features are in the foreground of your experience, that's gonna drive your predictions. It's gonna influence that automatic process. Mm. Um, you can learn to control your breath, which it turns out is a really good way to get a handle on your nervous system. So controlling breath turns out to be super important and learning how to sit properly so that you, which I, I'm terrible, terrible posture. Um, all this fidgeting that you see me doing is mainly because I'm uncomfortable, but, um, but uh, I have terrible posture, but actually controlling your breath with, um, with exercise, with singing, with yoga, with, with meditation, whatever it is that you choose to do, knitting, you know, whatever it is you choose to do, controlling your breath actually is a very important way 
of giving your brain flexibility. And then, and then practice making experiences, cultivate new experiences for yourself, learn new words, learn new concepts, cultivate new experiences, practice them like you would be practicing a skill because really what you're practicing there is flexibility. The more op options your brain has, the more flexibly it can build your emotions or dissolve them into you know, pleasure and discomfort, which sometimes, sometimes you know, the best thing to do is to experience your sensations as sensations and not as emotions. Wow. <laughs> That's a that's a lovely chunk of of information to really get and get your head and get your body into the space where it needs to be. Um, I want to say thank you very very much. Usually, what we do with our guests, we say uh, give back to the end. What would you give back? But I think that end section is pretty much the give back. <laughs> so um, I want to say absolutely thank you so so much because I'm a massive fan and obviously you you are incredibly brilliant and obviously if if you haven't checked out um lisa's uh, ted talk which has over six million views i mean it's incredible um and also her books as well so please do check it out so again i want to say thank you so much for coming on 360 yourself and it's been an absolute pleasure because i've learned a lot as well oh thank you well if anyone's interested you know i have a website lisafeldmanbarrett.com and that list that's you can find the ted talk there and a bunch of other talks i've given and a bunch of podcasts and articles I've written for the New York Times, The Guardian, various um, um, outlets, you know, about this, about this stuff. Um, and so it's all there and it's, um, it's brilliant. You know. And now that will be in all the, um, the description below. So we will have all this information for, for all our listeners as well. So again, thank you very, very much and all the best for all the amazing things and, and sending you lots of love for tomorrow. So yes. This is 360 Yourself and I'm Jamie Neal. Thank you very much for taking a moment to listen to our wonderful guests. Please subscribe to our podcast to access all our brilliant guest episodes. They are released every Sunday at 12pm. We are available on all listening platforms, Spotify, Pocket Cast, Overcast, Google Podcasts and Castro. You can also find us on Instagram at 360 underscore yourself, Twitter at yourself360 and our host at Jamie Neal JN. Thank you for listening. <laughs>